All right, and as the kids go back, kids, you can be thinking, I want you to think about why is it that Christmas is the only holiday that's centered around giving gifts to others. So as the kids go, one thing I've petitioned to our kids, said, how about on your birthday, instead of getting gifts, you give gifts to uh, all of your family and your siblings, and all of them are like, no, we don't want to do that. And, uh, or they say, yeah, let's start that on my brother's birthday, or on someone else's. But that's the way the hobbits do it, and I think the hobbits have it right. See, on people's birthday, uh, the hobbits don't get gifts, they give I say, you know, if you play your cards right, every single week you have the opportunity to get something uh, that way. But you think about Christmas is the only holiday that's centered around giving. I mean, we don't do it in Thanksgiving or Halloween or the 4th of July or Labor Day. And you just kind of think, all right, why? Now, it might be an interesting sociological experiment. And how did gift giving move to the center of what we celebrate on Christmas? And uh, I think whatever the reason, there's a profound theological reality that fuels that. Because the very heart of what we celebrate at Christmas, the very heart of who God is, what Jesus came to do, revolves around giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gives. For Christ loved the church and he gave himself for her. So you think about who God is. And you think about Jesus in one sense it's kind of mind-blowing to think about this. That Jesus is the only person who's ever lived who wasn't born but was given so in the early church, they made such a big deal about when we recite it in the creed and other places that he was begotten, not made. He wasn't born, he was, he was given. So when he says things like, before Abraham was, I am, people got really angry because they understood exactly what he's saying. And you know, for, as you grow, it's kind of a, it's a hard um, abstract concept as you grow older to realize that things happen before you. So our girls used to love looking at our wedding pictures. And they loved looking at the wedding pictures and they would often ask, how come we weren't invited? <laughs> so, well, so things, things happen before you were around. But Jesus is the only person ever lived who, like, he knew his parents before he was born, which is just kind of mind-blowing. Uh, he was given. And so what we want to talk about this morning, and if you're keeping track with the bulletin and tracking along, don't worry. I'm well aware of the time, and I promise we'll get out at the same time. Actually, at our church in uh, Georgia, there used to be this wonderful uh, lady who at, at 11.50, she would take her keys out, and she started jangling. And that was the cue to the preacher and everyone else. Your time limit has ended. <laughs> it's time to... So, well, I, I, no, you don't need to jangle your keys. I'm, I, I got it. So we're going to talk about this morning about giving, and I just want to focus on one passage in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians 9, and uh, I was amazed this week diving into this passage because 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is one of the largest, longest, 
most in-depth passages that teaches us about giving and generosity and uh, fundraising and ministry support. So if this is a part of your life in any way, this is just such a powerful, uh, beautiful passage that can uh, help, help shape how we think about these things. And so church in Corinth, I mean, this is a wealthy church. It's a talented church. It's a young church, but it's also a very dysfunctional church. And a year previously, the previous year, they had heard about incredible difficulties that had befallen the church in Jerusalem, the original church, the mother church, through famine and war and disease, the church had entered into a very difficult time. And so as Paul was sharing this, churches all, uh, that's predominantly a Jewish church, and as he went out into the Gentile and Greek world, they would hear about the needs of that church, and they would get excited to try and give and to help them. So a year previously, when Paul was trying to plant the church, they had got really excited about gathering up a collection to give to support uh, that church. And then after a year, what, uh, what began in kind of energetic good intentions had fizzled out almost completely. Now, they had gone through a very difficult year. There was some upheaval in the church, possibly a split. Part of the, the difficulties that Paul had to really challenge them in 1 Corinthians. And so life had a way of just uh, derailing their good and generous intentions. And can you sympathize with that? Do you know what that feels like to, in, a, in a time of excitement and energy to have good desires and good intentions and just have them get derailed by life? A new saying that we're working in our house is there's no normal. Because we feel like for the last four years, it seems like, we keep saying, ah, oh, once we get back to normal, then we will. And then it seems like every week something happens that derails our, once we get back to normal, then we will. So maybe there's just no normal. What do you do about that? Good intentions, good desires, getting derailed, not being able to complete what you begin. All of this is here in this passage. It's a beautiful passage that can expose uh, the heart, generosity in the heart, and the way greed can capture the heart. It can get at our uh, conception of life as um, a scarcity mindset or what aspects of life are zero-sum games. It's, it's all here. And, and uh, so we're going to look at this, and this kind of fits in when I talked about one of the goals for our church this year is to build up our Sunday ministry teams and those teams we want them to be filled and fueled by a healthy service a joyful glad-hearted giving of yourself to serve others and what we'll see in this passage in 2nd Corinthians the whole section gives this beautiful like service cycle where it begins with God pouring out his grace into people's hearts and they receive his grace and out of overflow of that grace they then meet the needs of those around them. Those needs uh, cause those people who uh, have their needs met to be thankful and uh, it causes them to be joyful and then it cycles back to God for God's glory. So this is a beautiful cycle. Beginning in grace, ending in glory with joy and thanksgiving in the middle. I mean, doesn't that sound like a pretty good way to live? A life that begins by his grace, ends in his glory, and has joy and thanksgiving right there in the middle. And this is the cycle that he wants to generate. So let's look at just quickly a couple things we see here. All right, what God does, uh, what we do, and then how we receive it. So first look at what God does. We'll start in verse 6 of chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians. And the point of this is whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 
And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, this is a verse we're going to key in on. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and he will increase the harvest of your righteousness. And you will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for this ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that is upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So as we look, just notice the first things. Just notice some of the things that God does. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So you have an all-sufficiency. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. He will supply your seed so it will increase to this harvest. And Emily, let's pull up first the first little God is able and just kind of see. I want you to see some of the, the, the poetry of this segment. Because no one's even structured, like, God is able to make, and then there's these beautiful parallels, all grace abound to you. So it's abounding in grace, so that you may abound in all good work. So it's all of his grace is poured out. It abounds, so you can abound in good work. And then what he does is when he pours it out, it's you have all sufficiency in all things at all times. So it's this idea of this, this abounding generosity and goodness. And, you know, that's one of the hardest things in life is to think about, all right, what situations and scenarios in life are kind of zero-sum games and what scenarios are not, where there, uh, there's abundance, it's, it's abounding. And you think about it, if you develop a spirituality, here, I have over there a scarcity spirituality, a spiritual scarcity mindset. It can be so destructive in how you see the world and view God. You know, there are certain scenarios that kind of are zero-sum games. So, for example, if, um, if you were locked in a room with seven other people and you were all uh, starving and there was one apple pie. Now, and then let's say somebody, you know, some selfish rogue sneaks over and eats half of it. You know, now you've got half that has to be, that's kind of like a zero sum scenario. And that's how most people kind of view the world. That's how it, it is. You know, selfish people kind of consume more. There's more for you, less for here. This is how it goes. Or some other scenarios that might be zero sum. Like you can imagine uh, there's two or three different boys and they're trying to uh, date the same girl. You know, it's a situation where there's at least two, maybe three, are going to end up disappointed. You know, that's kind of the situation when Cynthia and I were dating. It was competition. And it was a zero-sum game, and you might be thinking, how in the world did you win? And who are the other bozos? 
hypnosis. I'll tell you more about it. <laughs> but some scenarios are like zero sum, but then some aren't. So like, what if you're not locked in a room and there's only a small apple pie? What if the actual dynamic is you're in a bakery where the baker delights in making pies for you and giving you pies and he delights in teaching you how to make pies yourself so you can give to others? What if that's the dynamic? And so what here is that we live where grace is abounding so that you can abound. And see, grace is the thing that is not, it's not a scarce resource. It's not limited. It's one of those dynamic resources that the more you give, the more it grows. So there's certain things, like I think about uh, the Inklings and uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, at the time of Charles Williams, it kind of dwindled down to those three. And then Charles Williams, when he died, one of the things that C.S. Lewis did, now these are three uh, British writers in the mid-1950s who would get together weekly and they'd develop this deep, thick friendship and they encourage one another to, to write together and they would work on the things they were working on. And uh, when Charles, when, when he died, one of the ways Lewis tried to console himself was like, well, at least now I'll have more of Toller's, more of Tolkien. And he said, but the interesting thing is I found out I didn't get more of him, I got less. Because there's just aspects of who he was and his personality that only Charles could bring out. So friendship is not the kind of thing that's a scarce, limited resource. It grows the more we're brought into it. That's the way love and affection is. And all of the fruits of the Spirit are this way. It abounds. And notice what he says, grace, you get this right. You get the abounding grace in your heart, and then you will then abound with three different just extraordinary promises. You will have all sufficiency in all things at all times. I mean, if that wasn't in the Bible, you would laugh and say, you can't. I've been wrestling all the way. Like, how can this even be true? Like, what does he mean? You know, this word all-sufficiency, your translations might have different things. It's an interesting word because it's the same word that Paul will tell Timothy could translate it um, contentment. Uh, It was one of the the Greek virtues to to be content, to be satisfied, to be sufficient, to have all you need. So Paul tells him that godliness plus this contentment is great gain. He'll tell the Philippians, I've learned the secret in all things to be this, content. I have enough. I have what I need. That way I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when that, when that lands on you, when it grips you, when you realize uh, it frees you, frees you from a deep-seated insecurity and a grasping You just wonder how much of life in our world and life in your world is fueled by a sense of insecurity, insufficient, not not content. I have all things. You know, it lands on you. Things like blame shifting and excuse making, they just end. And then you have some of the other promises, in all things. So it's worth thinking about, you know, the promise, in all things, you'll have all you need. So if there's certain things where you think, all right, I have not, I don't have. You say, all right, why is it? Maybe I have not because I ask not. Haven't asked. Or maybe I have not because I need not. We were at Walmart a couple days ago, and my five-year-old asked with very 
disappointed, sad, emotional energy. How come I haven't bought him the Gigantosaurus yet? I says, well, that's not, actually, you haven't, you haven't noticed how much you eat right now. <laughs> We're getting more important things for you. Maybe you have not because you need not. All things, and then at all times, no matter what age, what age, what season, what situation, you have all you need. And you know, I noticed the, the movement is first it's all grace. And once you get that in the, under the canopy and umbrella of that, you have all sufficiency and contentment and stability, security. I mean, do you know how stable you would be if you believe this? You know, this week I've been reading a book called The CEO Within. It's a really interesting uh, book. I forget off the top of my head the guy who wrote it, but he uh, has directed the Y Combinator. So this is out in Silicon Valley and has kind of led uh, dozens of uber successful uh, tech startups. And uh, interesting, but one of the things that really struck me is in the chapter on finances, he, he gives these kind of tech founders, the people doing the startups, kind of two numbers to keep in their mind to hold on to. It's 10 million and 100 million. So 10 million is like, he's like, all right, life is uncertain, it's ups and downs, and so 10 million is your first target because until you hit 10 million, you'll just never feel uh, economically stable. And I'm really thinking, wow, that's a lot higher ceiling than I, I was anticipating. And then 100 million is a target. So, all right, this is your target. Uh, it says once you hit 10 million, you now have the stability so you can use your money to have fun. And then 100 million is a ceiling because once you get over that, it just becomes, you know, the classic American philosopher, Puff Daddy, mo money, mo problems. <laughs> He says, you just hit 100 million and it just gets too, it's just, it becomes way more complicated than it needs to be. So he said, once, you know, don't have fun until you hit 10. And then once you hit 100, then you start pouring everything else just for good into the world. I thought, wow, that's interesting metrics. But then, I mean, maybe it just shows I come from a different kind of social class, but you just think about like our world, you know, the, the medium household income in Lake Nona is 131,000. So if you take kind of Dave Ramsey's just, I mean, baby step two of financial peace is six month emergency fund. That's, you need to be stable and secure. That's 65,000. And so we might look at, say, all right, you need 10 million to feel secure. Well, 98% of the rest of the world would look at us and say, wait, you need 65,000 to feel secure? Like what's your number where you feel stable at peace? And what he's saying, if you experience all of his grace, he, he will pour out grace for you in your time. That's why we come boldly to the throne of grace to help you in your time of need. And once you have that, then you are secure and stable. You can be strong. You can be stable. So that's what God does. Reminds me of the beautiful story that Charles Spurgeon loved to tell. Charles Spurgeon, British pastor in London, uh, at one point, probably one of the most recognizable people in, in the world. And his church was on the south side of London. It was a very poor uh, area, and he would go around doing uh, visitations. And one of his favorite deacons in his church, uh, he would go, and he was extremely uh, poor. But whenever the pastor would come, he would kind of bring out his best. And Spurgeon said often it was, uh, he would 
served tea that had already been, you know, you, the leaves had been used before and watered down soup, but then they would, they would sit at the dinner table and the, the man would look around with this giant smile and say, all of this and Jesus too. All of this and Jesus too. He wasn't, he wasn't uh, affecting, it wasn't affectation. It was, he said he was one of the largest hearted people he had ever known. All of this and Jesus too. So when you have the grace, when you have that, everything else all on top of that, it's all gift. It's all gift. And so when we experience that, then what do we do? And then notice moving through what, what we have. You will be, in verse 11, enriched in every way to be generous in every way. You will increase your harvest of righteousness. Now, hear that harvest of righteousness. Don't think, oh, righteous like self-righteous or, you know, righteous in a morally snooty kind of way. Righteous is a shorthand. In some ways, just right relationships. Your relationships will be right your relationship will be right with God. That'll be set right. Your relationship with yourself will be made whole and right. Your relationship with others and the world will be made whole and healthy. They will be put right. And then you see this cycle about God pouring out his grace. They receive it and are filled by it. Then they pour out their life for others. And then those lives overflow with thanksgiving and praise. Love verse 12, for the ministry of this service. That's the word, the deacon, the diaconate, the diakonos, the serving, the ministry of serving, serving others. This ministry is not only supplying the needs. That's the first, all right, there's needs. So we see needs, hear needs, and then you supply the need, and then it overflows into thanksgiving to God. And by their approval of this service, that ministry they glorify God because your submission, what you confess and what you believe, and then your contribution. And then notice the beautiful phrase, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace that is upon you. So how do you experience this? You know, there's a movement in 2 Corinthians. It's beautiful. He first starts talking about uh, the surpassing glory of the new covenant, that we are new covenant members and there's a new dynamic, the way we relate, that God has taken out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh and the, the surpassing glory of this new covenant that's purchased by Christ and given to us in his grace. And then there's a, the surpassing greatness of the transformation. Because of the new covenant, the veil has been removed and now we can come into God's presence without any inhibitors or with any barriers and we can see his face and as we see his face, we are transformed. The surpassing greatness of this transformation as we are new creatures and we become like him. So uh, surpassing glory, surpassing greatness and now he celebrates the surpassing grace. Because once we come into his presence, once we see into his face, once we grow more like him, we then begin to pour out that grace into the lives of other people around us. Surpassing glory, surpassing greatness, surpassing grace. So how can we know this? In this whole section, one of the key verses is a, is a chapter back in chapter 8, when Paul's trying to motivate them. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God. Grace is the banner over this whole thing. The grace is God's been poured out to motivate these acts of grace. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given to the churches 
of Macedonia, and he tells about what they've done. And then in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You know you know His grace. This is the key to living the life of grace is growing in your knowledge of His grace for you. The Christian dynamic is we begin to do unto others what He's already done unto us and for us. So He says if you want to have this type of uh, grace-filled heart, you got to know His grace. What has He done for you? The reason why we give gifts at Christmas is because we're celebrating He is the ultimate giver. He said, I want you to know this. You learn it and let it change you. You know that he gave you the gift of his life in your place. I've been amazed this week talking to different people going through baptism. And it's, it's a hard concept to kind of get across. But one of the beauties of baptism is Peter. In uh, First or Second Peter, it talks about uh, the, Noah and the, the, world's, the baptism that they went through in the ark. And Jesus, before he went to the cross, says, I have a baptism to undergo. And one of the symbolisms of, of the baptism is that the water on, and judgment was poured out onto the people. And on the cross, the judgment of God was poured out on Christ. And in our place, condemned he stood. So now we can receive the waters of life because he had the, the wrath of God poured out. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The stripes that came upon him are the things that bring us healing. It's the gift of him in our place. Delivered up for our trespasses. Raised. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And he gives us the gift of, of redemption. He says, the Son of Man didn't come to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom to purchase you, to buy you. Paul tells the, the elders in, the, in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. Care for the church which he purchased, he bought by his own blood. The gift of redemption, the gift of reconciliation, that while we were still estranged and enemies to God, that we have been reconciled through his death and that through Christ God is reconciling us to himself and the gift of atonement, the gift of life purchased for us, gift of purity to purify us, the gift of victory over the last enemy of death. That's why Paul said, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. And the dynamic is we receive the indescribable gift and then we enjoy, give back to what we've experienced and received. So our hope, our prayer, and all that we do is that we know that gift, that we love that gift, that we're gripped by that gift. And the loudest voice in your mind is the voice that lets you know about the surpassing greatness of His grace. And one of the reasons every week we have part of our offering cycle and communion cycle is, is to live out and experience that cycle of we come to the table and we taste a symbolic representation of the greatest gift you can ever be given. For he who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things, all things, all sufficiency in all times and all places? 
And so we celebrate and we receive the symbol of that great gift, and then we balance it with the offering of our symbolic giving back. Here's we give back a portion, recognizing that all comes as good gifts from your hand. So each week we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and the way we do it here is we'll have different communion servers at different places. There'll be a gluten-free in the back, and then you come and you take the wafer and you dip, and it's our weekly reminder of his good, lavish, loving gift to his people. Once our servers are in place, you come.